0: Hi, I am here today with a woman who inspires me every day, and I'm sure she'll, she'll do the same for you, Raquel Rosenblatt. I met her in 2014, I think it was this spring, and uh, she came in to DIMMIC. And since then, oh, I should say she is now the vice president of institutional advancement at DIMMIC. Which is a very substantial career move. Um, she is enigmatic an enigmatic force. she's both incredibly deferential and caring as a as a person and as a leader she's incredibly purposeful and directed so that's a that's an interesting mix, and I find her fascinating, uh, inspiring, and um, and so I want to share that story with you. So, Raquel, nice to meet you.
1: Nice to meet you, too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to speak up, because okay, they're we'll going to want to hear what you have to say. Absolutely. So, I know that you've built a solid career over a long period of time, but I'd like to um, to start by by talking to you about where you grew up and how you see, you know, your parents and how you grew up as as starting to shape you into somebody that you are today.
1: So I grew up not too far from Boston. I grew up in Framingham in the Metro West area, and I never really strayed that far um, after uh, growing up there, I went to school here in Boston at Northeastern University, then went on to graduate school at BU, um, but from a very young age, I'd say both my parents really shaped me in terms of thinking ahead to the future, developing strong leadership and convictions about things. You know, at first I thought that really it was my dad, who was my primary role model, and helping me think about becoming a leader. But now that I think about it, my mom was too. She didn't have a high-powered job outside the home, yet she really stood for so many things and believed in them so strongly around our religious upbringing, around the importance of being kind to people, being thoughtful, that I think a lot of what has happened to me over the years is really the influence not only of my dad, who was a leader in, in title and in stature, but also from my mom.
0: Well, it's interesting because it plays into that mix that I introduced you as, which is you you're a leader who can also be caring. And I think that's something that often gets lost. I think um I think it is a defining mark of a leader to be able to be decent and kind in the mix, don't you? Yeah, I do. I I I do. I really believe that. And so
1: often, some of the leaders who actually are my role models in many ways, I think back to the things that I've heard them say and do. And oftentimes they'll, they admit they'll never apologize for anything. They don't think they're ever really wrong. Um, But I don't think that's necessarily the way a leader has to be. And I'm glad that you noticed that. I want to make sure to uphold that belief that I can do both. You know, I can be that strong, functioning with belief and conviction and also being compassionate and caring about people.
0: Now, you said your dad was a leader. What did
1: he do? He was the dean of the College of Criminal Justice at Northeastern University for many years. He wasn't the founding dean, but he was the second dean starting in the early 1970s until his retirement in 1991.
0: And did you then always feel as if you were, you were going to go into some sort of higher education position?
1: I'm not sure. You know, I think I, I remember, you know, clearly going to work with him from the time that I was really young and loving being on that campus and really getting a sense of what it felt like to be in that environment. Um, I, I think I knew I didn't want to be in academia, in a you know a professor position or that kind of a role. Um, I knew pretty early on by the time I was maybe in junior high that I wanted to help people. So the idea of human services, social work, that kind of thing really drew me. For a while I thought that I could find that kind of a job in a college setting, a director of a community service office or that kind of thing. But um, I love being on a college campus, that excites me a big part of my career has been spent there in the development field and that was really fulfilling too.
0: You started off at Northeastern, right? You started your career there? I
1: started my career um, at Brandeis. My very early job was Brandeis University. Brandeis. So
0: you moved from Northeastern with a master's degree,
1: correct? Yep. Um, Right from Northeastern, I got a bachelor's degree in human services from Northeastern and 1992
0: dating myself. I've already done that for myself. (laughs) Um,
1: And then went right on to get a master's degree in social work from Boston University. So I did those two things back to back and then started my career after that.
0: Now was that all self-funded or did you have to, were you working at the same time? How did that all uh, arrange itself? And, And do you have siblings that were also pulling on your parents a little bit.
1: No, I'm, I'm an only child. And at that time, my um, career as a student at Northeastern was completely funded um, generously by the university because my dad worked there. And that was a benefit. That's (laughs) a a big benefit. So, um, So that was great. And then by the time that I was able to go to graduate school, we were able to have the resources, you know, to support that, Absolutely. and I didn't have to work full time, which is I'm very grateful for. I know
0: that could be an incredible challenge. So you move on, you yeah. go to Brandeis as what? Tell me.
1: So I got to Brandeis, and I, my first position was in the development office as an assistant director of corporate and foundation relations, which really was fundraising from local foundations, local corporate philanthropic arms to support different parts of the university scholarships, fellowships, um, support for programs and academic divisions in the university and I love that. it was really fun. I loved the writing.
0: Can I ask you a question that all sounds incredibly um, complex for someone straight out of grad school um, Did you have a mentor there? Did you have a guide? did you how do you how do you? start to generate a network of people who, I mean, you're working in development, that's all about networking. Yeah. And it's, I think, something that is always challenging for um, for women who are incredibly busy to keep up and to build yeah. and develop. How do you do yeah. that?
1: Well, I think, I feel like I learned that initial skill of networking, even as an undergraduate at Northeastern you know I had a few really special professors who became my mentors and very close friends in many ways um, and they talked about that value of always build a network you know always reach out to someone even if you have to call them at home about a question apologize and do it anyway you know really get yourself out there and it's okay to do that you know it's totally okay to reach out to people to Quickly say how you got their contact, and then progress from there. So I did that. I kind of got that skill as an undergrad. Um, when I went to graduate school, that school, that skill was really reinforced from other professors and colleagues there. So that after that, um, actually, I did have a I did have a job right out of graduate school before I got to Brandeis. I worked for a few years at a national anti-hunger organization called Share Our Strength, and that was a great position. It gave me that feeling of being in the community right here in Boston and starting up a program in nutrition education for low-income families, and I loved it. It was fun. It was very diverse and dynamic and all the different things I had to do. And really quickly, I learned I had to fundraise for my program. So that's really how the fundraising began. Um, after a few years, I I did move from there to Brandeis. And I had that base of fundraising experience. But I remember the process to get the Brandeis job was intense networking. You know, it was calling and reaching out to people to schedule informational interviews and leaving that meeting with a list in a very traditional way of five more people to call, cranking through that list, calling the next
0: five, you know. Wow. And it worked. That's (laughs) incredibly knowing. I mean, that's way before people started spending a lot of time talking about yeah. networking. It was certainly something that wasn't in my past yeah. or understanding at all. So that's, that's really interesting. Did your dad sort of flag that early on to you, that that was an important skill set to develop? And, and, and then the second question to that would be, how do you handle rejection? Yeah, so I think my dad
1: probably did do that without using the term networking you know, he talked a lot about the importance of reaching out to people, building a close circle of people whom you know, who can support you, who, you know, who, who can connect you with others. And I saw him do that. And I saw his networks of people, not just on campus at Northeastern, but more broadly in the field of criminal justice, more broadly in the city of Boston, legislative leaders. So I saw his circles. And even without him using that term, how to network, I, I got that from him. Um, So it's challenging. And what was your next part of the question? (laughs) How do you, that's good.
0: Um, How do you deal with rejection? Because I think that's the second part of the networking equation. Certainly for me, um, I always feel like I'm stepping on someone's toes. I think a lot of women do. Uh, I always feel like if I haven't gotten an email back, it's because it's personal. Yeah um and i'm bothering someone and so i should just discount them and yet in development that is precisely your job right. is to find a way in without sounding like you're selling them something right. And I, I think I might have had a thicker skin early
1: on than <laughs> I do right now um, because I remember the rejection of you no know, and I, I can't talk to you no, it's not a good time or even when I remember asking after I would go on job interviews, I'd try to get the answer to the question, you know why didn't you hire me or, I, or asked for like you know could you give me some feedback and even then I mean no one really wants to talk about that, you know right but but, um, but I did that and I kept doing it so i I did develop in that time period, especially from shifting from the Share Our Strength position to the Brandeis job. I did develop some level of, you know, thick skin (laughs) in that process, which was great. And I remind myself of that now. You know, I think now my focus is just get as many requests out there, get the word out, reach out to people as much as you can, and the byproduct of the funding and the connection and the engagement, that'll come, you know. So I, I keep my focus there as opposed to being afraid of the rejection and that's and that helps that keeps me moving forward.
0: How do you build for for some place like Dimmick Center, which is been sort of becoming more and more of a public force right certainly in in um, behavioral medicine recently with the whole op- opioid mm-hmm. crisis, I think it sort of was the leading voice for this area, this region um, Tell me how you would reach out to someone who really isn't well schooled on what Demic does and its and its place in uh, in its community.
1: You know, we found
0: I personally have found this, and we all have here working at Demic. The
1: opioid crisis is touching everybody, and I think that's where we start. You know, everybody I talk to, either personally is in recovery, has a family member or a friend in recovery, unfortunately has experienced someone they might know having overdosed and died. They see it wherever they are. They don't have to be living right in this Roxbury neighborhood. These are folks who live in on the South Shore, on Beacon Hill, you know, in other parts of the state of Massachusetts. But addiction is an issue that touches everybody. And that's where we start. That's where I start when I talk
0: to people. So about you that. have empathy. Absolutely. So you start with empathy yeah. and and build from there.
1: Yeah, and and people, it, the response is immediate. You know, people immediately say, "Oh my gosh, my sister overdosed. I wish I knew Dimick was there," and that's a good segue to, "Oh well, let me tell you more about Dimick." And that you know that. So I think that we do, we are perhaps unknown and still in some circles, as much as our name is getting out there and we're getting a great reputation. But around the opioid crisis, in particular, I think that's what I've seen a lot of. Number one, the addiction touches everybody. But number two, when I tell people about what we're doing here, they say, oh, I wish I knew. I wish I had known last year or two years ago. That would have been so important.
0: Well, how as as a, a leader do you, do you build up from strength to strength when there's never a lot of money in a budget and you have... So many things you're trying to accomplish, and so many people you want to help. Yeah, it's it is an ongoing challenge, um, and I, as much as I feel
1: great pride and excitement when we have success and meet, meeting our goals or reaching you know certain levels of revenue, I know that it, it can change you know so many factors. In particular, now or at any given time, can influence people's ability for philanthropy and other things. Um, my approach really, and this is kind of how I got. The area of fundraising that I love so much is the stewardship part of the fundraising cycle, stewarding people to show the impact of their gift, expressing gratitude with the intent of keeping them engaged and increasing their giving level and sustaining it. So that's really my focus. You know, When I find myself getting really overwhelmed by a revenue goal or how are we going to do X, Y, Z, how can I make this work? I go right back to the basics of just reach out, touch a donor, say thank you, share something, feature them some way do something special to express gratitude and even just that gets me refocused and able to move forward and say we can do this you know we've done this before this is really how it
0: works so it is it is sort of it is the personification of something that happens with you as an individual or anyone as yeah. an individual that if you stop focusing on the fear factor yeah. and start in the simple place of giving thanks yeah. You can, you can get yourself back on track.
1: Absolutely. I, you know, I, I do that in my personal life, <laughs> I, I, and I do that at work. I, you know, I kind of, I tend to live by that beautiful quote by Maya Angelou, um, probably paraphrasing it, but that people will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they will always remember how you made them feel. Yes. So I really, that informs me in all of my life,
0: really. That's, that's yeah. incredible. That's, yeah. that's beautiful. And a, and a great segue for me because yeah. I want to take you back. Um, there are a couple of things that I left out in my introduction. One of them is that um, Raquel has a husband who is a, is a leader in his own right. And two teenage girls, which, you know, brings on its own challenges and she's balancing that all the way that women do Um, so that's one thing and then I I wanted to go back and start with um, what what may have been a defining thing in your life and that is the um, the death of your father Mm -hmm. from I believe pancreatic cancer which as anyone who's who's been with someone who's had this it's it's a brutal brutal form of cancer, not that any of them are particularly easy but um tell me about that and tell me how it has shaped you how it changed things for you
1: yeah it happened at it happened quickly this was in the earlier days of I think cancer treatment around pancreatic cancer. this was nineteen ninety one so it was a very quick process of diagnosis to when he passed away maybe five months in total, right when I was beginning my senior year of college. So I remember very distinctly, um, in just my own way of, of dealing with things, I, I, I captured what was happening quickly. I grieved intensely right from that first day of learning his diagnosis. Um, and then I just kept pushing forward, making sure that I could tell my father everything I wanted to tell him. Making sure that I could get him to respond to all these great things that were happening. In many ways, I was really stewarding him. Now that I think about it, you know, yes. to show the impact on my life. But you know, I um, I was you know still in college. I had been with dating my current you know my husband for a few years by then. Um, I made sure that my dad felt and understood the future of Leon and myself, and he actually said what are you going to do? You're going to marry Leon. That's great. So I feel like he, he confirmed he that. He did. <laughs> you know, that was yeah. that was wonderful. I told him he was my role model a few days before he died. So I felt like I got that covered and I felt really good about that. So, you know, he he died and it was um it was incredibly sad cuz he was still so young. You know, 63 years old we now know that's not very old, right. <laughs> you know, that's not that old at all, <laughs> you know. Right around the yeah. corner. <laughs> um, so it, it's just, it It was a very sad time, and unfortunately there was a lot of other death in that year after he died from other family members, but what, what keeps me going is that um, I think about him often. I often will think to myself when I'm in a challenging moment at work, what would my dad have done? And I can almost hear him, you know, saying, okay, you know, let's do this, or let's do this, we're going to do this first. And I remember him distinctly when I go into his office from back when I was a child, how compassionate and caring and collaborative he was with his staff, and the loyalty that he built with his team, and how he really cared about them as people. They all were at his funeral. It was such a special moment for us all to be together as a family. I kept in touch with him over the years. So it... I think about him, and he that really keeps me going in many ways in my current job. Um, the other thing that's really amazing is that um, my younger daughter has the same birthday as my dad, and that just um, was pretty extraordinary. She was born a week early, so it kind of happened that way, um, but that was the best gift. You yeah. know, that was an amazing gift, and I love to think that there's my dad you know, continuing on in my daughter.
0: Well, let's talk about your family a little bit. Um, so you introduced Leon. Hi, Leon. So so tell us what he does and um, and tell us about your daughters and how you keep it all moving forward when you're doing a job that's pretty intensive.
1: So Leon has a great leadership position in the city of Boston. He's a biochemist by background, and he's the director of the environmental health office of the Boston Public Health Commission. He's been at the commission for almost 25 years. He's a great practitioner in the field, um, and he really has this great position of overseeing lead poisoning prevention, asthma prevention, certifying uh, nail and tattoo parlors, keeping the public health of Boston from an environmental perspective really in the forefront. So and significant. And
0: I, I, I do want to interject here that I've met Leon, and you would never imagine him to be a biochemist simply because he's incredibly engaging, funny, charming. Um, vibrant, vibrant yeah. personality, uh, and what a great spokesman for um, sort of the environmental needs of the community. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, a nice mix of science and community stewardship, yeah. I would say, is his role. And then yeah. your daughters.
1: Yeah, um, but I just want to say that about Leon, he, um, he is so much more outgoing and social engaging than I am I could you know he can talk to a rock you know he loves it like he just really gets into that exchange and like being put into you know a cocktail party and just having a great time I'm the opposite of that so it it balances us out in this nice way um, so we have two girls um, Naomi's 14 and Anna is 11 and um and they're and they're terrific you know they've I talk to them a lot in very specific ways about the importance of being a leader and ways that they can do that in their daily life in school, outside of school, and how. And I reiterate to them the important message that I live by, that you want to always make sure people are feeling good. People will always remember how you make them feel, and that, in many ways, I tell them is really the point of life, is to live a life that's full and enriching, but in doing that is helping others and just always thinking about others, and that's really
0: success. And do they, as young preteen and teenage girls, are they, are they on board, or are they, are they sort of going in their own directions?
1: They get it. I'm actually really proud to see them in many different ways, and I think they, they get that. I see my older daughter, Naomi, in particular. I really, I think she could very well be some significant public figure. At some in the future, um, she like Leon just loves being around people she, that energizes her. I see her um, as a leader on her swim team to all the younger kids. Um, she encourages them. They come up. They give her hugs after and before every swim practice, and it's just it's this lovely way of her role modeling. Um, and my younger daughter, you know, she has this very strong way of of believing things. And, and she'll stand up for them. You know, that's not okay, she'll say, when someone does some behavior at school. And I, and I applaud her for that. It's You're right. You never want to let something unacceptable happen um, that you can help prevent. If someone's being bullied or hurt, she feels that she knows how to help others. And I think that's leadership. So it's really cool to see that, you know, even at their ages now. And I often wonder, how'd they get this? You know, I, is it from Leon? Is it from me? Is it neither and they just are I think it just <laughs> no. is yeah. I
0: think it just there's a certain point where yeah. you know experience and genetics yeah. intermingle so much don't yeah. you
1: oh yeah
0: I'd like to take credit but no. <laughs> well I tell me what inspires you now and and what you would suggest to to young women maybe listening to this, or maybe older women who are trying their hand at something new to, to move forward in the face of adversity, what would you suggest? Yeah. I
1: think that um, what really inspires me, that I think can really be helpful for other people, is that it's okay if you're not the head of something. You know, I, I'm not the CEO of Dimac. I probably never will be, but I can make change. I can see the change I've made in the past, you know, year and a half. I can see that in the numbers. I can see that in the impact. I can see that in what people are telling us. So we can still do that. You know, we can do that at any level of position, at any company. Even without working full time in a traditional job, we can still make change. And I think that's something really important to remember, so we don't get so overwhelmed or throw up our hands and say, "Forget it. I can't do this. I'm not in charge. I can't do it." Yes, we can. We can do it. Do
0: you ever fear anything?
1: I fear many, many things—too <laughs> many things to list. <laughs> um, yeah, and I do. I guess the opposite side of that is um, I'm terribly afraid of not being successful.
0: Yeah, I
1: a I lot really of really, yeah. and that that is my big fear. You know, as much as I can just feel proud of what we've what we've done here at Dimick and. I feel like I've had good ideas. They've implemented. They've worked. They've translated into revenue, new things, a better presence. I live in fear every minute that that could change, and I won't meet a goal, or we won't do you know so well in something.
0: Is that? Is that? Success in terms of numbers and on a paper, or, or is that? a defining success to it's, you? You know, it's
1: both. I mean, I feel like I, I I, feel successful even without raising a certain amount of money if I get the feedback from people. Mm. You know, wow, now I know about Dimmick. Wow, no one ever called me to invite me to Dimmick. That was great. I'm really glad we connected. No one ever solicited me. I've never been to Dimmick, but, and I've made that happen. That, to me, is success, you know? So I feel like, again, that making people feel connected and good about Dimmick and and special... That, to me, is success in addition to raising you
0: know, the X amount that I have to raise in each fiscal year. Yeah, touching people. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you and Leon have been able to do that in your lives, which is pretty significant and, uh, and inspiring in itself. So thank you. Hopefully this is the first of what will be continued conversations between us, but it was terrific to meet you and... Um, And share your story with people. Thank you. This has been a real
1: treat.